following is a presentation of Refuge Calvary Chapel Huntington Beach with Pastor Bill Welsh. For more information about our ministry, please visit refugefamily.com. We're going to be reading right now from Luke chapter 1. So if you would uh, stand with me while I read about nine verses to you. Maybe ten, maybe ten. All right, Luke. All right, starting, what did I say? Verse 26, verse 26. It says, now in the sixth month, that doesn't mean the sixth month of the year. It appears to be in Elizabeth's sixth month, sixth month of uh, bearing John the Baptist from the story that just comes before. But now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And if he had stopped right there, she still would have been a bit frightened. But what a blessing, right? He goes on. Blessed are you among women. But when she, Mary, saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. And then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. Angels are always saying that because they always frighten the daylights out of people when they show up. But do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? She's saying, I've never been intimate with a man. How could this happen? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Father, so unfolds a story that so many of us know so well. And Father, I pray that you would take us deeper into this story and really the the backstory of who this child was. And, and just how he represented you, Father God. So Lord, we open our hearts to you today and pray that you would just do a deep work in us today. In Jesus' strong name, amen? amen. In whatever language, amen, amen. Go ahead and have a seat, please. I think the best songs, and let's face it, Christmas is filled with songs, special songs written for the occasion. But I think the, the best songs are those that speak honestly and truthfully about the beauty and the meaning and the mystery and the purpose of this amazing event. Now, we have a name for this event in, in the church world. We call and what, what do we call this? Jesus coming is what? It's immaculate conception, but, but Christmas is, it's a big A word, the advent, the advent. You know what advent means? Look up here. Advent is the arrival of a notable person, a thing, or an event. So how many of you would say the, the notable people that were born into your family, that was an advent when they came. They arrived. They were here. And, and the advent of your wedding day, it was an event. It was an, it was an advent. And so it, it's this remarkable moment 
when Jesus steps into this world. Now, I wrote a book five years ago that none of you have read. I don't know why you haven't read it. Well, I do know why, because it hasn't been published yet. But it was five years ago, and on that year, I was doing a daily, very brief little devo on the Advent, and I called this book The Advent Adventure. And it is finished in its first or maybe second draft, and I need to go back and, and just make sure on two things um, that I, I'm, I'm sh- I want to make sure that it says what I hope it says or what I tried to say. And I also want to make sure that any embarrassing typos have been taken out of it. How many, how many of you know what I mean by embarrassing typos? How, how many of you have big fat fingers on tiny little keys on your phone, and sometimes you send off a text before you've really proofread it, and somebody on the other side sends back a text and said, what do you mean by that? Why would you say that to me? How many of you have ever had that happen? You've sent off a text without, and you're embarrassed because you don't use those words anymore in your life. But um, So anyway, my hope is that it'll be out by next fall. And so pray with me that that happens. But it's a 40-day devotional journal that covers this pivotal story of the arrival of Jesus on our planet, our earth. And trust me, there's no little drummer boy in the corner keeping the baby Jesus up at night because he just keeps banging on the drum, and there's there, there's no other of you know some of the the recreation of Christmas that we've stuffed in to the story. It's just about that. And by the way, if you ever get a text from me that or or an Instagram, I see it on Instagram or Facebook or a DM or what email it, and it says something you think I didn't say, trust me, I didn't say that, and just forgive me <laughs> in advance. But Pastor Jeff, in the last two weeks. As he started this series, he did a great, great job as he's turned our minds to this Advent adventure. Two weeks ago, he talked about how to prepare, how to prepare for for this celebration, how to prepare for this season. And I love what he said. He said, start early and speak often about Jesus. And once you've got that established in this Christmas season, just keep it up. And keep it going after the Advent season and all the celebration and all the decorations have been taken down. Keep speaking much about Jesus, about this notable arrival. And I, and I agree with what he said. He said it's impossible to overdo this celebration of Jesus' arrival here if we do it right, if we make him the main event. So the, the focus is not on the figgy pudding, Okay. <laughs> And the focus is not on the, the big guy in the red suit sneaking down somebody's chimney at night and somehow getting down there without getting soot all over himself. It's more about the true story. Amen? Well, last week, great, great message. I just re-listened to it again yesterday while I was walking in the morning, and it was about Jesus being our rescuer. And could anybody have forgotten that story he told at the beginning about the Navy SEAL team that came in to rescue some, some captives, and they were afraid of them. Here they came in with their guns, and they were afraid of them. And the one guy that got the idea to lay the weapon aside and lay down on the floor and curl up next to one of those captives and realized he was one of them. And that is the story. That is the Christmas story, that Jesus came among us looking just like us and made himself one of us so that he could rescue us. He could redeem us. Well, this week, I, I want to answer the question in the title of one of my favorite Christmas songs. 
And now you've already shouted out which were your favorite Christmas songs. And I heard somebody that said it. One of the, one of the Christmas songs. Somebody said, Mary, what? Did you know? And a lot of people love that song, Mary, Did You Know? I'll talk about that just a little bit later. But the, the hymn that I'm thinking of, the Christmas song that I just absolutely love is this one. What child is this? That's what everybody would have been wondering. Even once they'd met him. Even once they saw the baby. Oh, what a beautiful baby. I'm assuming Jesus was a beautiful baby. But I'm, no offense, Jesus. I'm just assuming. We don't have any. The, all the photographs from that era have been lost. We, did, we, we don't have any of them anymore. But, but that song, What Child Is This? It was written by um, a songwriter, a poet, back in 1865, William Chatterton Dix. And it wasn't until five years later that it was actually put to the tune that it carries with it now. Anybody know the name of the tune that's behind What Child Is This? Somebody in every single service has known it. What? Green Sleeves, yes. And Green Sleeves was attuned to another song, a very different song. It was a love song. It was a love song. Now, now there's some difference of opinion on who wrote the lyrics to the original Green Sleeves song. But uh, some people say it was Mozart that wrote it. I always thought it was Bob Dylan that wrote all, all the great songs. But, but it was uh, supposedly... By some people's estimation, it was written by King Henry VIII for his lover and future queen, Anne Boleyn. <laughs> she didn't last long as queen. How many of you know about that? She lost her head, literally. He married her, and three years later, he beheaded her. And he went on to what? Six wives, I think, that he had, and had one of them annulled. He was not a good guy. But, but do you remember the words? Of course you remember them. I love how words work their way into our memory when they're put together with music. And you know this song. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard. I'm not sure they guarded as much as they gawked as they went to see him. Whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste. In other words, hurry up to bring him praise the babe, the son of Mary. It's a beautiful song. I've always loved that song. Beautiful song, but it's a great, great question. Who is this child? And what is this child anyway? I mean, really, who is he? And we've already started to discover in Luke chapter 1. Let me give you the list up here. In Luke chapter 1, we discover that he's going to be great, and he is great. The greatest name in all of humanity the name of Jesus. He will be great. He'll be the son of the highest, the son of God. He will take the throne of his father, David, so he'll be in among the Jewish people, taking the throne of the kingdom. He will reign forever. It's going to be an endless kingdom. Listen, no more questionable elections anywhere ever again. His kingdom will stand forever and never be overthrown. And the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary that would bring to the point of Jesus' birth. The Holy One that will be born, he said to her, will be the Son of God. But let's collect a little bit more, okay? Turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and just follow along with me. Matthew 1, starting at verse 18, we'll just read down about six or seven verses. And there it says this, Matthew's account. The birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, 
before they came together tells you the same thing that Mary said to the angel. Before they came together as husband and wife, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, that means a righteous man, a man who lived by God's word, a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example. You know what that means. Two things. He didn't want to embarrass her. At the very least, he didn't want to embarrass her. But he realized if this story got out, I mean, if he went public with this, like, like maybe a betrayed lover would, that she could lose her life, not just her reputation. There, there, was, there was material in the Old Testament that said she should be stoned if she was found pregnant with another man's child. While he was, I'm sorry, verse 19, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was mindful to put her away secretly, find some way to dissolve the union they had made in their betrothal period, their engagement, and just walk away. Look at this next verse. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, and aren't you glad he took time to think it over? And not just a knee-jerk reaction, I'm out of here, and you're over. While he thought about these things, and he thought for a long time, he says, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That is should have been in capital letters in our Bible because that's the emphasis. I love this. He's been up, he's been up all night long, I, I get the idea, thinking, what am I going to do? I do love her, but I can't go on with this marriage. What will I do? He thought about it long enough. He fell asleep with it on his mind. And an angel interrupts his sleep that night with a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to emphasize a couple more words from the angel the way I think he would have said it. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. I love the fact that God got a hold of this man's heart and he changed his mind. Look what follows. So, it, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets saying, behold, the virgin shall be with a child or with child and bear a son and they shall call his name, say it with me, Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And then Joseph aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. How many of you have ever had a weird dream? Anybody ever had a weird dream? And you woke up thinking, what was that? Did you wake up and immediately try to make that dream come true? That's exactly what he did. He obeyed the angel that appears to him in the dream. And it says in verse 25, last verse, and he did not know her. They didn't come together physically. Did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn, not his, but her firstborn son, and he called his name what? Jesus. Here's what you get from Matthew. Here's what Matthew adds, that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, that he will be our Savior, there would be no other Savior coming for us, and that he would have two names. First name that's mentioned there is Emmanuel, and it just simply means, hey, God's here among us. Well, that's good to know, isn't it, if God is here among us. But the next name that's the name everybody would know him by. You, you never see Jesus called Emmanuel 
anywhere else in the New Testament except around the birth story. He is God with us, but here's what he came to do. His name Jesus means God will save us. Yeshua means Yahweh is our Savior. That's what he had come to do. That's why he was here. He would save us from our sins. He had come, he had come to be our Savior. And I, I love that. Just It's enunciated more than once there, not to save us from Romans or from the Romans or other more maybe local politicians today. He came to save us from our sins and to deal with our biggest problem. Listen carefully, please, please, Followers of Jesus, understand this. Your biggest problems are not political. Our biggest problems are spiritual problems. We all need a Savior because we have all sinned. He says, this child that's coming, he'll take care of your biggest problem. He'll take your sins away. He didn't take the politicians away. He didn't change the government right then. They all wished that he would. Eventually, the Romans would be gone and someone else would come in and dominate them. But he's, that's what he would come to do. So today, I, I want to, and I mean this seriously, I want to attempt to answer, at least in part, what it means that Jesus would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And here's the question. What would that have looked like if God was here among us? I, I don't mean what did he look like physically. I mean, that's anybody's guess what Jesus looked like physically. We, we just really don't know. But I'm going to limit my focus to one simple theme today. What did it look like when God was walking here among us? Now, you know, on the issue of, well, what did he look like? Did, I mean, did he look like Jonathan Rumi on the left? Did he look like James Caviezel and all the other ones that have stepped forward to play the greatest person that's ever lived? I, I don't know. I know one thing about about uh, Jonathan Rumi, he's too old to be Jesus. He's 48 years old. And Jesus didn't live past 33 and a half. Jim Caviezel was playing the part of Jesus in um, The Passion of the Christ when he was about 36 years old. So that's a little bit closer. But, you know, the, the question that's always asked, and everybody wonders, and artists go to town on what he looked like, and I think it's very interesting. Whatever culture... And whatever tradition a person is coming from, whatever nationality, I love the fact that Jesus in their art is painted to look like them. He has their, their skin color. He has their features. He has, it just, and I, I love the fact that people realize he's accessible. He would have been among them. He would be among us. We don't know what he looked like. Did he have curly hair, straight hair? Here's an option. Did he have no hair? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about the hair on top of his head. At least I can't find it anywhere. We know about the hair on the side of his face. We know he had a beard because it said that they would try to pluck it out. And that would have happened while he was on his way to the crucifixion. So we, we don't know what, what Jesus' hair color was. We don't know if it was curly or straight. We don't know if he had brown eyes or hazel eyes or, or blue eyes. We know he had black eyes by the time they finished with him. And in terms of a depiction of what Jesus looked like in movies or, or even television series, I think in, in The Passion of the Christ, they came pretty close to what he looked like when the Romans got done with him. I remember my pastor, Chuck, 
making a comment about the Passion of the Christ. Chuck did not go to many movies. He was not a moviegoer. But he went to see this one because somebody recommended it, I suppose. And he came back and he was saying, oh, I, I think they went a little too far in the way that he depicted him being just shredded, his, his flesh being shredded. It's very likely that he was just ripped to shreds from the cat of nine tails that would have whipped him 39 times for us. We know that he was beat up, but how dark or light his skin was, how tall he was, honestly, can I say this with all respect? I don't care. I don't care at all because it doesn't matter to me. And I don't think it matters how tall he was, whether he was a Wilt Chamberlain or a Muggsy Bogues. He was, he was bigger than life. He was big enough to do all that he was called to do. And, and, and you know, in terms of his skin color, I mean, he was a Middle Eastern. And so somewhere between a, a light brown to a darker brown skin color, most likely, is what you see in that region. My question, what did it look like when God was walking among us is about far more than just Jesus' physical appearance. It's about his character. It's about his, his temperament. And it's, it's about his profound impact on those people that he encountered and that allowed his touch in their life. What would we expect if we had been told that God was going to spend 33 and a half years walking among us here on this planet, and specifically three and a half of those years in what we call his ministry years? Well, we've seen what God looks like in the Bible, in a sense. We've seen when, when God steps into the picture and creates the whole picture of this universe. In the book of Genesis, God is powerful. Would you agree with me that God is pretty creative too, obviously? You look at all the things that he made and how many mysteries are there still when you see the intricacy of plant life or animal life and, just, and, and probably still some species we've never even seen yet down in the depths of the ocean or little crevices up in the mountains. Have no idea just how creative God is. You turn into the book of Exodus and you see God as a, as a mighty rescuer. He parts waters to move his people out of, out, of, out of the reach of danger and harm. And he calls plagues on the oppressors. And all of us have wished that we could you know, implore God, would you, would you continue to call down plagues on the oppressors of the world today? We see him do that. In Exodus and Leviticus together, you see the lawgiver speaking. God, who gives us the instructions for life, detailed instructions on how his people are supposed to live. On our own, personally, how we're supposed to conduct our life, but how we're supposed to do life together. And he speaks with detail on what our corporate life is supposed to look like. How we're meant to to love one another and be patient with one another and on and on. He gives us instructions for when we gather to worship which is just like that much of our life, how we're supposed to come together. And then he tells us how to live between those worship services too, what kind of people to be. But in the Gospels, when God stepped here among us and walked around, what did that look like? Man, who hasn't wanted to have been there? I mean, if you want, how many of you have ever thought you, you would love to live at the time of Jesus? Can I see any of those hands? No cell phones. No cell phones. No, no laptops. You okay with that? No refrigeration. <laughs> you still want to be there? I do. Wherever he is, I, I want to be there. 
Yeah. Oh, and you would see it again. You see in the Gospels that same power, that same creativity, the restorative plan of God worked out in Jesus on every human being that would allow his touch. And there was rescue. And there was serious instruction on how we're to live. I see Jesus moving around and he's, he is bold when he needs to be bold. And he's meek when he needs to be meek. He doesn't speak sometimes that we wish he would speak. Just speak up, Lord. But he spoke truth when he spoke without apology. Let me say this and let me explain this. Jesus was one of the most inclusive people this world has ever seen. And let me tell you what I mean, because that word has taken on a a new meaning in these days. He was very inclusive, reaching out to Jews and to Gentiles and to men and to women and to kids. He had a special place for kids. We talked about that a lot here. And when I say he was inclusive, I mean he invited sinners of every degree, every single category, to come to him and abandon their sin and be saved. Jesus, Jesus never endorsed any sinner in their sin. He loved them while they were still in it, but he never endorsed them in their sin. Never once do you see him talking like that. He called them to abandon their sin and be saved. You, you would hear him say this over and over and over again. He would say to somebody, now come and follow me. Come and follow me. But the classic one, He doesn't tell this person to follow him, but he saves their life. It's in the Gospel of John, and Jesus is on the Temple Mount. And a pack of men, religious men, righteous men, vindictive men who hate Jesus, and are trying so desperately to trap him in some some conundrum that he can't figure out, what will I do now if I do this or if I do that? And they bring to him a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. The missing part of that story is profound to me. They don't have the dude. They got the girl, but they don't have the guy. That should have made their their, their case fall apart right away, I would suppose. But they they drag her in before Jesus and they say, this woman's been caught red-handed, the act of adultery. We've got a book that tells us we're allowed to kill her. What do you say? It says she should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus, this is one of my favorite scenes of Jesus. He just stands up and he says, well, let he that is without sin. We need one, just one sinless person. That's all we need is just one of you. Whichever one of you, one sinless person, you cast the first stone and then the rest of you. Well, you can all just join in. Just needed one to start the rock throwing. And then the picture is so classic Jesus. He stoops down and he's writing in the dirt or doodling in the dirt. We don't know what it says. And I've heard so many preachers, I'm one of them too, that has has taken a stab at what he wrote in that dirt. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. He could have just been flicking dirt around or playing marbles. I don't know what he was doing, but that's not the point. He gives them time to think it over. And this is what I've kind of inferred maybe over the scene. If they came in ready to stone this woman with rocks in their hands, in in the time where he said, I need a sinless person to start, you'd have heard doom, 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 thud as the rocks hit the ground at their feet. And they go, I got us again. And they all go. And then he turns to the woman, he stands up and he turns to the woman, one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Bible. 
And he says, where are all those accusers of yours? Doesn't anybody condemn you now? And what does she say to him? No one, Lord. (laughs) No one, Lord. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. Just go your way and just don't get caught next time. No, he didn't say that. He said, go your way and stop that. He said, don't live like that anymore. So Jesus was inclusive. He said to that that woman, whether she was a prostitute or just an immoral woman in that town, he said, I, I receive you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. He was inclusive of her, but he said, don't live like that anymore. Turn away from the sin. Jesus doesn't save us so that we can continue in our favorite sin, even if everybody else is endorsing it. He said, it's for that sin that I'm going to take the nails in my hands. It's for that sin that I'll wear the crown of thorns. So separate yourself from that. Come away and sin no more. Well, I want to look briefly this morning at the manger again, this wonderful Jesus who starts his life in such an such an unbelievable way. And this is where it gets surprising and I think pretty exciting. You see God in human flesh, not just normal human flesh, like the human flesh I'm looking at here, baby flesh. You see Jesus with baby skin wrapped around him. And I want to talk about that. that, That's different. And by the way, don't trust all the theology that we get from some of our Christmas hymns. If, if the only thing you know about Jesus is what you get from Christmas carols, you're not reading enough, okay? You got to go back to the Bible. And one of them, the classic ones, and I love the song, away in a manger, no crib for his bed. And, and, and even, I love, the, I love the tune, I love the melody, but I disagree with which part. And little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Come on, man. Can I say that? He was a baby. He cried. Trust me. Ask Mary when you get there. Mary did. Oh, he cried. He cried like all babies do. But to look at who he really was. Let's take a look at that. Here's what we all know about babies. They all have the same kind of a beginning. It's a humble beginning. It's a humble predicament for them. And God humbled himself to come into this world in infant form. He's God. He, he could have decided, I'm going to start at junior high age. I'm going to wait, and so I'm, I'm ambulatory. I can move around a bit. But junior high age, that would have been a rough time to start. But here's the point. Here's what I want to, want to say this morning. Number one, jot it down. If you need to jot it down, I'll put it up here so you can see it. When Emmanuel, God, was among us, when God himself was among us, He showed up with great humility, tremendous humility. What's more humble than a helpless baby? Now, now moms, let me know if I leave anything out on this, all right? Little tiny babies, they need to be fed. They need to be nursed. They need to be burped. They need to be clean. They need to be rocked. And that's all just what the women do, right? Our, Our job is just to protect them, right? No, dad, you can rock the baby too and you can feed the baby, but this baby is completely humbled to be at at your discretion. If you're going to feed it when when that little baby is hungry, what will you do? Jesus humbled himself. And that humility shows from the beginning to the end of his life. I want to read this to you from Philippians. 
Philippians chapter 2. If you got your Bible, turn there with me. I was going to put it up on the screen, and I had it up, but I have it up in a different uh, translation, and I want to read it from this one. So in Philippians chapter 2, just a few verses here. Starting at verse 5, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's Paul saying, you need to be more like Jesus. And in this way is what he says. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Do you hear what he said? It was humbling for God Almighty to put himself in this world in the form of a human. But he did it. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So that humility all the way through his life. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is humility. Jesus humbled himself and stepped in here among us. In Matthew chapter 13, jot it down in verse 55. The scene there is, uh, is Jesus with, with his disciples, but they're up in, in like the Nazareth area, it seems. Wherever it was, the question was, so who is this guy? I mean, who really is he? And then somebody speaks up and says what they've seen. He's just a carpenter. He's just a carpenter from up the road. He's just a builder and a fixer and, and, and a carpenter from, from Nazareth. He's, what, what's he saying? He's no big deal. And he didn't look like a big deal. I love this in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, verse 58. Jesus has had someone come to him saying, I want to follow you. And you know what Jesus said to him? He said, well, birds have nests to go home to. And foxes have dens to hide out in. He said, I don't have any place to lay my head. Where did he live? Where did he live? Outside. Oh, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus have a home in Capernaum? Yeah, but he wasn't there very much. He was always out on the road. He crossed into five, I mean, four or five or six different nations around them, up into Syria and Lebanon, went across into, into Jordan and then down to, to other you know, local, um, I, I guess you'd say people groups. But he was all over the place all the time. He said, I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy that lives on the castle up on the hill. That, that is, is not me. Another one in Hebrews 4. Verse 15, it says, he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he was tempted in all ways just like us. Jesus was humble and his humility was remarkable. And people would see it and it was, it, they, I don't think they said humble, Jesus, meek and mild, but they saw the meekness of him. They saw his humility. The second thing I want you to see here is that when Emmanuel was among us, he was vulnerable. And that was remarkable too. The vulnerability of Jesus was incredible. I mean, every baby, come on, starting at the beginning of his life, every baby is vulnerable, aren't they? If you leave them alone, they're not going to survive. They're not going to make it. They need you to survive. Well, now, when, when Ida, our, our youngest uh, granddaughter, was born, 
And, and Joy and I, I would get down there, and we, we went down to visit again this last Friday and, and put in about, an, and put in like, like we're you know, serving a term. We, we were able to, to be there for about an hour and a half before I had to go do the shepherd down in uh, uh, Lake Forest or one of those places down there. But, um, but I remember when we, when we started bringing gifts and started bringing toys, we'd bring the toys and Starlin would examine the toys to make sure that they were safe <laughs> for her vulnerable little baby. What was she mostly looking for? Anything that was two things, a choking hazard or something toxic, just to make sure that I would not bring toxic things to my granddaughter, but I didn't have an idea on how big it was, was or how small was too small. But that vulnerability, it, it, it was just, Jesus had it. He was humble and he was vulnerable. Jesus was a vulnerable baby and he was, he was vulnerable in other ways too. He was vulnerable to the same things that hurt us and tempt us. Again, going back to the verse where it says he was in all ways tempted like us. He could have, I believe he could have fallen but chose not to. Theologians like to argue over whether Jesus had a nature that could have fallen or not. I know that he didn't. I know the devil thought he could get him. And other people thought they could get him. He was vulnerable. His heart broke. He was vulnerable. He was vulnerable emotionally. He was vulnerable relationally. And I, I want to talk about both of these. He was vulnerable in this sense that, that he, he could feel what you feel. He could take on the suffering of other people and feel it deeply. He wasn't play acting. Well, one of my, I guess it's say, I would say it's one of my favorite stories in all of the, the New Testament is the story of Lazarus. When the messenger runs a day's journey to go tell Jesus, hey, your friend is sick. And what the, and, and what the messenger doesn't know is that by the time he gets there, his friend Lazarus is not sick, he's dead. Because Jesus waits for two days to come running to help. And it takes him a day to get there. And when he gets there, Lazarus has been dead for four days. So by the time the messenger gets back, the wake has already started. And when Jesus comes and visits, just this one part, it's every Sunday school child's favorite memory verse. Just two words. Say it with me. Jesus wept. And he knows what he's about to do. He knows that as soon as he calls out to the Father, there's going to be life in that dead body. But that one moment... And it's, it's significant to me that the gospel record doesn't say, I looked over at Jesus, John would say. I looked at Jesus, and I'm sure I saw one little tear coming down his cheek. No, he said, he wept as he entered into the suffering of those that he was ministering to. He knows your suffering. He knows the burden you carry. He knows the fresh loss that you've experienced in a group this size or someone who's, who's walked that path just very, very recently. We had a memorial service here on uh, Friday for Shaddy's father, Pastor Shaddy's father, Magdy. What a remarkable man he was. And I got to share that story there. But Jesus was very, very vulnerable in that sense. You see him in the garden, and what does it say? He was in what? Agony. Agony is pain. It's deep pain. It's emotional pain. And with whatever that bizarre thing was where they said it looked like blood coming from his brow, that he was sweating great drops of blood, I'm sure there were tears in that too as he fought for your salvation and for mine. But there's this one verse 
that I found. And I, I, I remembered it. I couldn't find it for a couple of days, but I found it again. It's in Jeremiah, and I just want you to see this. And I want you to see the way that it's set up. Jeremiah 14, 17. God is speaking to Jeremiah at this point. And he tells Jeremiah, therefore, you say this to them. You shall say this word to them, speaking for God. And so God here is saying, let my eyes flow with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people has been broken with a mighty stroke and with a very severe blow. If you know anything about the history of of, uh, the southern nation at that point in Judah, that they were in deep trouble because of their rebellion. And God says, this puts tears in my eyes. If you have a problem with imagining or, or, or considering that God could weep from his heavenly throne, God who knows everything and has all power, I'm just telling you what the scripture says there, that he weeps. And I think he, when we're told to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, you think God doesn't do the same thing from heaven? So he was, he was, he was vulnerable and he was humble as he walked among us. Jesus, from beginning to end, you see that emotional vulnerability and the relational vulnerability. But one more thing, Emmanuel, when he's among us here, Emmanuel was extremely, Jesus, extremely approachable and extremely available. There's not a sense of threat in approaching a baby, is there? You ever been scared to approach a baby? No, nobody's scared. You might be afraid they're going to cry on you and you won't be able to make them stop, Dad, when you got to watch the baby for a few hours while Mom goes out to, with some friends. But, but there's no fear in a baby that a baby could ever hurt you, but especially this little one sleeping in the manger. There's no threat. Everybody is welcome to come. There's no one too low class that's going to be shut out. Is anybody happy about that? That means you're welcome. That means you can come, whoever you are. Whatever, whatever class you might be, you are welcome to come. You're welcome to come and worship like shepherds came and like wise men came. Every single one of you has a, an all-access wristband <laughs> into the kingdom of God. And if Jesus had been born to King Henry VIII, which is a sad, poss- not possibility, a sad thought, it's unlikely he would have survived. But if he had survived, oh, you're not going to get into the castle. You're not going to get into the, the multiple palaces that he had. You can't get past the guard. But when Jesus was plopped down in a feeding trough, which most likely, let me put it this way, it's just as likely that it was not in a barn and it was not in a stable because as you tour Israel, you'll see mangers out in the open on the farmland. It's where the, 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 the farmers will come out and they'll drop the grain or they'll drop the hay in these little elevated troughs. And that's where Jesus was laid. Just as likely that it was out in the open, maybe under a fig tree out there somewhere. And so approachable. And I love that about Jesus. And then follow him through his life. Tell me he's not approachable. When lepers need his touch. And when a condemned prostitute needs his touch. Other broken souls. Oh, he's got time for people. He doesn't care what they look like. He doesn't care what they, how they smell. He doesn't care where they came from. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So God among us 
He was humble and he was vulnerable and he was approachable and he was never detached from his mission as far as I can tell. His mission here on earth, he knew what his father's business was. Now, now my kids, they, they love music. Our kids, Joy's and my kids, they love music and they've all excelled in music and, and they're all musicians and, and singers and I love doing you know, the, some of these recordings I've done over the last few years with them in there. I can't imagine not doing it with them. And I love the way that our children are attentive to the lyrics of the songs that they lead in worship. They want to make sure that the lyrics are speaking what? Truth. That it's not just a a romantic idea that sounds good with some music behind it. They want to make sure that it's true to scripture. And so I was driving around with Shannon and Jesse back in in Florida when I went back to do the shepherd at uh, West Church in Bradenton, Florida. And uh, we're listening to some Christmas music as we're driving around and that song came on. Mary, did you know your baby boy? You know the song. And, and Shannon said, oh, I'm so over that song. And so we got to talking about it. She said, to begin with, yes, Mary knew. She'd had the conversation with, with the angels. It's still a beautiful, beautiful song that you know, brings up a lot of emotion. And I still like singing it, but, but she, she's kind of right. Mary, Mary had some inside information, didn't she? And so... You know, Mary, did you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I really did know. But, but you asked that of Jesus. Jesus, did you know? Did you know that one day you'll die for the sins of the world? Oh, yeah, yeah, he knew. Now, I don't know at what age he became very, very aware that that was the mission of the Father. But, oh, yeah, he knew. And he certainly knew by the time he started walking all over Israel with his disciples, he knew, and I believe he knew when he was at least in junior high school, which they didn't have, but 12 years old. And they go south to, to celebrate the Passover as a family with Mary and Joseph and whatever younger brothers or sisters he had by that time. And there were some, it's just, it's just a fact, there were some. But when it's time to pack up and go back up to Nazareth, which is a long, long journey, at least several days, three to four days, if, you, if you're really moving every day. And they're heading back north, and they get a few days out of Jerusalem, and suddenly the, the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph realize, oops, we don't have Jesus with us. And they search around the people they're traveling with. You don't know, no, we haven't seen him. Oh my goodness, we've lost God. We've got to go back and find God in human flesh. So they go back to Jerusalem and they search all over and they finally go to the temple and there he is. And what's he doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's preaching and he's teaching and the elders are stunned at the depth of his understanding and Jesus gets in trouble. You know, I, I get the picture. He gets scolded a little bit by Joseph and, and he says to, to Joseph and Mary, he said, well, you, you should have known. You should have known where I'd be. You didn't have to look all over. I would, I would be at my father's house doing my father's business. He knew what he was here to do, to speak for God and to serve the father in the most remarkable way any of us have ever seen. And Jesus knew at 12 what he was all about. The course of his life had been set. I had this, this thought uh, a couple of days ago. 
Did, did Mary and Joseph ever sit him down and talk to him about the magnificent beginning of all of this? About the visit from the angels and the dream from the angels and, and, and about um, his, his cousin, John the Baptist and Zacharias and, and Elizabeth. And did they ever sit down and Mary just reaches up and she pulls out Jesus' baby book and she opens it up and she shows him all the pictures and shows him the main... The, the pictures have been lost from that era, so we don't have them anymore. But, uh, but did she ever have those moments? She said, hun, son, or honey. You think she called him honey? Or uh, Habibi? Or whatever she called him. Do you, do, I want to tell you where this all began. I'm sure she had to have told him that. And, you, and, I, and here's the other thing I wonder. Did he say, oh, I know. <laughs> no, yeah, I, yeah, I know that stuff. I, I, I don't know. If you think you know that, that's fine. I don't know. But I, I just, I'm, I, I don't know. Neither do you, but I wonder. But, but we, do know, we do know this. We do know what child this is. This humble, vulnerable, approachable baby in the manger. He was your creator. He was your savior. And he was sent to do the unthinkable in the most unexpected way. The most necessary thing that would ever be done was what he would do on that cross. And I, I love the fact that in the story that we have at Christmas, I love how these angels show up, don't you? I mean, the messenger angels. But the night he's born, the night that he was born and laid in the manger wrapped up in rags, and one angel says, hey, I'm going to go tell somebody else. And he finds these shepherds. And he scares the daylight out of the shepherds, too. And he tells them, don't be afraid, which is always easy for angels to say. They say it all the time when they show up and scare people. Don't be afraid, because born unto you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then it says this. After he said that, the sky was filled with angels. And it says, how many? A multitude of the heavenly host appeared. And all of them were, doing, were saying what? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace and goodwill to men. And then they disappear again. But the angels just, they, they're so excited as they show up. It's finally happening. It's happening. This, this plan that was unfolding, and I don't know if they really knew what it would look like until they saw what it looked like. I don't know that they were, were privy to all of that information, but they see it there, and it's just remarkable. But there was another, another thing that, that struck me. Oh, and while I'm thinking about that, you know, the, the angels are watching all of this, and they think, oh, a manger? Yahweh. A manger? This is the best we can do for the Son of God? It's a manger? And no face masks, you know, for the baby? And no, you know, sanitary pumps, you know, for, to keep everybody clean that comes to visit the baby? None of that? And here's the thing that I was thinking about. All these angels show up then. Here's my question. Where were these angels on the day of his crucifixion? These multitudes of angels. They don't show up on the day of his crucifixion. They're not in the story there. One or two of them show up on the tomb the day that it was empty to tell some women, hey, he's alive, and you need to go tell some people. Oh, and be sure to tell Peter, because he's really bummed out right now. But just go tell some people. But where was, where was the multitude 
on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, I got to thinking about this, that I wonder how much of this they saw coming. The brutality against Jesus and his humility and his vulnerability and his approachability. And, and I just, I won't be surprised if we find out when we get to heaven, because listen, Jesus said before he was crucified, remember what he said? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas has come to betray Jesus for a handful of coins and, and Peter pulls his sword and he says, I'll take care of this, Jesus. And he says, put that thing away. And you remember what he said? Don't you know that I could right now call for 12 legions of angels? You know how many a legion is? A Roman legion? 6,000 soldiers. He said, I could call on 72,000 angels right now. So they were within reach. But you know what I think was happening when Jesus was dying for us in his humility and his vulnerability? Those angels were being held back. I think Abba was holding them back. And I can just see these angels like Gabriel and Michael just saying, let me at them. Let me at these men. He says, no, this is how it happens. This is how we save the world. He has to go through that. But there were, there were at that Christmas, there were the angels making a racket and celebrating what was worth celebrating. Amen. And there he was at that Christmas showing us exactly what Abba himself is like. He was humble enough to hang out with people like me. And like I said, that, that would make some people suspicious if they were willing to hang out with me. But he was vulnerable enough to weep over our brokenness. And he was approachable enough to open wide his door and say, you're welcome here into my, not my castle, my kingdom. It's made for you. So if you're still waiting to approach him, what are you waiting for? That's your God who comes to you with humility. And yes, with power, but he comes to you to save. He's approachable. Enter in, approach him with humility. Approach him with vulnerable openness and confess your sin and stop excusing it and abandon it, forsake it. And stop running from God and start running to him today. Not my version of God, his version. Look at this Jesus. And why would you not run to him? Give your Savior a good reason to rejoice over your return. Oh, that, that's something that has, has really, over the last several years, come so alive to me. I, I, I have this uh, picture in my mind when I got saved. I was just a little over 18 years old. And I came to Jesus on a, on a Monday night in a, in a Baptist, uh, old Baptist sanctuary in, in Long Beach Lakewood border, right in that area. And I, I asked Jesus to come into my life. And I kind of have this, I had that for the longest time, this view that, that as I approached God, he was standing there like this. He's saying, it's about time. It's about time. You saw things my way. Really. And when I hear Jesus in the gospel tell the story about a lost lamb and 99 that didn't run away, and his conclusion to that beautiful parable is him saying, I tell you, there is so much rejoicing. There is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who turns from their sin, stops making excuse, 
saying, so it's, it's my generation, it's, my, it's just me, it's just, just get over it, God. The more rejoicing over one sinner who turns from their sin, turns to God, than over 99 so-called righteous people who think they've got nothing to repent of. And that changed my view of God when I saw that. I know that whenever I repent of my sin, God isn't just taking out, you know, the, the record in heaven and saying, okay, we'll count that one off. Now, please, just don't mess up again, Bill. But I'm not, if I'm looking up, thinking that I'm looking towards a scowling face, it's saying, well, it's about time. Look again. Because what you'll see is a smiling face of God, rejoicing that you said no to sin and yes to him. Amen? Yeah. That's, that's our God. He rejoices over your return. It was about, and I'm, I'm going to finish right now. It was uh, this first time I've said it. I heard Jeff say that last week. This first time I'm saying I'm finishing and I'm really going to do it. You've never seen me do this before. But I wrote a song. Actually, I co-wrote a song about 35 or 37 years ago with a pretty well-known songwriter. I'm pretty happy that he was willing to work with me and collaborate on this. Uh, you've heard of him, uh, Ludwig von Beethoven. And he and I got together, and he did the music, and I, I did some words. <laughs> and, uh, and the song is called Jesus Humble Babe, and it says, Jesus humble babe in manger, love of God extended now, save us from eternal danger, as before your throne we bow. Kings and shepherds, poor and noble, come now whosoever will. Come adore the King of glory, cease your labor and be still. And that is our God, our Savior, humble Savior. And I want to sing another song with you. And it was uh, written by Brenton Brown, I don't know how long ago. And I've always loved it. But we only sang one verse of it because that's all that was on the first recording that we heard. And then I heard it on a Christmas album. I had no idea that it was originally a Christmas song. If you want to look it up, it's, gonna, it, it's called Humble King. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We'll sing this and then we'll, and we'll go. You'll catch on in this really quick. You'll, you're going to be wanting to sing it before the first verse is over, so just jump in. Oh, kneel me down again here at your feet. Show me how much you love humility. Oh, Spirit, be the star that leads me to this humble heart of love I see in you. Cause you are the God of the broken, the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary, embrace the ones in need. I want to be like you, Jesus, to have this heart in me. You are the God of the humble. You are the humble King. Now here's the Christmas verse. 
here in this dusty ground I bow with kings where wise men laid before their offering I lay no golden crown here at your feet just this my broken life I offer We're going to sing the chorus part one more time, but I want to encourage you. Um, as we're singing this, you're going to be singing, You're the God of the, of the broken, the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary, embrace the ones in need. If that's you, if I just described you in one of those words, broken or weak or weary or in need, I want to encourage you to just lift your hands, maybe even just right before you, and say, Lord, I'm the one that needs you right now. I'll sing this to you. Because you are the God of the broken, the friend of the weak, and you wash the feet of the weary, embrace the ones in need. I want to be like you, Jesus, to have this heart in me. You are the God of the humble. You are the humble King. You are the God of the humble. You are the humble King. Oh, Lord, how could we not? run to you. Father, I, I want to ask you to forgive me and forgive us, Lord, for any way we've ever misrepresented you in such a way that would make people not want to come to you. Maybe we've been the men standing there with stones in our hands to stone other people. Father, maybe we've been inconsistent in our, our witness of you. Father, forgive us, but Lord, I pray that today this would just be such a moment, Lord, of new life for those that need to come to you and realize they're coming to you, the humble king. The humble king is so ready to receive them. The vulnerable king that feels the weight of their pain and their sorrows and their burdens. The approachable king, Lord. So we come to you. Thank you, God, for receiving us. Thank you, God, for loving us. We love you, Lord. Jesus' strong name. Because you are the God of the humble. You are the humble King. Well, grace and peace to you as you continue for the rest of your life to celebrate the Advent, the remarkable arrival of Jesus. Make room for him. God bless you. This has been a presentation of Refuge Calvary Chapel Huntington Beach with Pastor Bill Welsh. For more information about our ministry, please visit refugefamily.com or call 714-891-9495.